Hello, I'm your reader, Tim Gracie, and it's time for our birthdays. First up is Maureen Wilson from Urbandale. Next is Bill Bowden from Cedar Rapids. And lastly is Catherine Rose from Ottumwa. If today is your birthday and you didn't hear your name, give us a call so that we can be sure to get your birthday on our list. Here's a reminder that our program schedule has changed dramatically so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m. seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Midwest Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. Let's get back to the news with our first story from the USA Today section. In peril but still feeding America. Essential workers across the USA know they're risking their lives, and they know some won't make it. John Deronomy knows what danger looks like. Danger was people dying in front of his eyes during the Liberian Civil War nearly 30 years ago, and the hunger that gripped his family as he spilt, split a cup of rice between five people for a meal. It was the fear that pushed him to flee his home at 22 years old for a chance at a better life in America. Now the 50-year-old is facing danger again. This time it's the threat of the coronavirus, which kills at least two of his co-workers at the Smithfield Woods, excuse me, Smithfield Foods meatpacking plant in Sioux City. It's the worry he felt when his locker mates coughed and bumped into his shoulder in the crowded locker room, and the desperation he felt while praying in his bedroom after learning he tested positive for COVID-19. Danger is showing up to work in difficult surroundings while the rest of the world stays home. But Deronomy doesn't have a choice. He's one of 3,700 workers at the Smithfield Foods pork processing plant in Sioux Falls, where more than 800 employees have contracted the novel virus spreading across the world, but those employees are just a fraction of the essential workers across the nation who are feeding America. Deuteronomy understands the importance of his role in the food supply and keeping America fed, but he's risking his life every time he steps into his uniform, he said. I don't like the term essential workers, he said. Essential worker just means you're on the death track. His place, or excuse me, his piece of the American dream. Duranami can smell his workplace from outside his front door. He lives about two miles southeast of the plant, and when the wind changes just right, the stench of dried pig's blood permeates Sioux Falls, which is South Dakota's largest city with a population of 180,000. The smell doesn't bother him. It's the scent of his livelihood that lingers on his clothes for the past eight years. Deuteronomy was driven to work by his family at the beginning of April, his last day at work, and a week before the Virginia-based company announced it would close the Sioux Falls plant because of the coronavirus outbreak. He opened the vehicle door and turned around to say goodbye to his family. 
One of his children recoiled at the smell wafting into the vehicle. You go to school and you learn, Dronomy, lectured before closing the door. Then you won't have to be at this stinky place like me. Days later, Deronomy tested positive for COVID-19. Sioux Falls wasn't Deronomy's first choice to live out his American dream. He moved to Minnesota when he was 26, but he struggled to find lasting employment for 18 years. He met his wife while he was living in St. Paul, and he was lured to Sioux Falls with the promise of a steady job, strong pay, and ample benefits at the meat packing plant. I hardly believed I would be able to get a job, pay my rent, and support my babies, he said. I came and filled out an application, and I was lucky. Deronomy started out as a package worker, sorting product into boxes for $20 an hour. Excuse me, for $10 an hour. Now he makes $18.20 an hour as a night shift utility worker filling in for various positions across the plant. The pay increase has helped support his growing family of eight children, six in Sioux Falls and two children from previous relationships. He's able to support the family he left behind in Liberia as well. Half of his Smithfield paycheck goes to his mother and siblings in Liberia, and to save money as part of his plan to return home one day, to West Africa. Nobody else wants the job. Deronomy rarely sees his children. He works 50 to 60 hours a week on the night shift production line, coming home exhausted early in the morning. He's fast asleep by the time his children buzz through the house, getting dressed for school. The night shift starts at 4 p.m. nearly every day, just before they return from class. Typically, he parks his red 2008 Ford Explorer in a gravel lot across the street from the plant and walks into the building and the crush of the locker room, where he's greeted by his locker mates as he changes into his uniform. He changes his clothes, puts on an apron, and his safety gear, a pair of glasses, and a metal vest that prevents him from accidentally stabbing himself. Then he slips into his sleeves, pulls on his cut glove, and slides into his steel-toed work boots. He wraps a beard net around his ears and a hairnet on his head, and he places a white hard hat on before standing on the production line for the next eight to ten hours. Usually, Deronomy works as drophead, training the hogshead in a group of four people as it passes through the production line so a USDA worker can inspect the product. It's quick, heavy work. As part of his utility role, he's been filling in as drophead for four years. Your shoulder, your back, everything hurts, Deronomy said, but nobody else wants the job, so I do it. It's not an easy job, but when you've been there for so long, it becomes easy. He's been at Smithfield for so long, some of the tasks come naturally. When I go to work, I do the best I can because I'm getting paid, so I have to work accordingly, he said. I love working there. If I didn't like working there, I wouldn't be there for this long. It's long and tiring work, but he keeps punching in for his shift every day, even once he started worrying for his safety at the as the coronavirus broke out at the plant. Deronomy cried for hours after getting his COVID-19 results. He's only 50. He's strong and healthy, but the week before, he felt ill. A 51-year-old mother and teacher in Huron died nearly eight hours after presenting symptoms. He kept going to work until he knew he was sick. He is an essential worker, so he had to show up, he said. Essential worker means that we're on the front lines working because we're the ones providing food for people and they're depending on us, Deronomy said.
Essential worker means you're on your own. You make money for them, and then you endanger your family. When he woke up on April 7, he felt sore, or more sore than usual. He didn't show a fever when his temperature was taken before entering the plant, but he insisted he was ill. It wasn't until he spoke to H.R. informing them about his symptoms that they instructed him to go home and get tested. Since the first case in the plant was announced on March 25, he knew that he'd get sick because of cramped working conditions at the meatpacking plant. It was just a matter of time, he said. I got friends that were sneezing and coughing and grabbing their chest at work, he said. There was nowhere safe. Even if you avoided the cafeteria, you can't avoid people on the line. He locked himself in the master bedroom of his family's apartment for the next two weeks, surviving off Liberian foo-foo and spicy foods his wife left outside his door. While his wife and children surrounded the dinner table most evenings, she would call Duranami on the phone, allowing him to be as much a part of his children's lives as he could be at that moment. I'm not so scared of dying, but who's going to take care of my family, he recalled, asking and praying. His wife slept on the living room couch for the two-week period, and she slept on the couch a few more days after he was cleared by the South Dakota Department of Health. No other family members tested positive for COVID-19, and Deuteronomy calls that a blessing. But when his self-quarantine ended, the question of when he'd return to work weighed on his mind. He needed to return. His wife also worked at Smithfield, but her income alone wouldn't cover their expenses. But how would Smithfield keep open, keep them safe from spreading the coronavirus to their children? He might have tested positive for COVID-19, but he worries that he can catch it again. Back to work with reservations. Deuteronomy returned to work on May 4 for a safety meeting, nearly a month after catching the coronavirus inside the facility. He and his co-workers were instructed on new procedures at the plant and how to wear provided face shields and masks. He saw that Smithfield installed plexiglass barriers between the production line station about six feet apart in most areas. Recommendations set by the Center Centers for Disease Control and Prevention during the agency's visit to the plant in mid-April. The locker room will be capped at 50 people, he said, so it won't be as crowded. The temperature tent still stands outside his building's entrance. Despite the precautions taken, Deuteronomy is still concerned about returning to the plant. Deuteronomy's wife and children will get tested this week before he officially returns to work. He's scheduled to return to the production line May 11, but he has already requested vacation in time starting May 18th to escape the plant and its risks. He planned to return to Libya for a month this summer to visit his family, but now plans to use that vacation to stay at home. He's teaching his five-year-old to ride a bicycle and wants to catch up on family time that he has missed. Ultimately, he'll return to the processing line, like thousands of other essential workers, risking his personal well-being to support the nation's food supply and that of his own family. I'm doing it because I need to support them, he said. Defying Governor, Georgetown waits. We'll decide when to reopen, people here say. For Elaine Williams, the coronavirus couldn't be more personal. She watched her son take his last breath April 3rd over a cell phone screen, two days after he tested positive at a hospital two hours away from home. Five days later, she buried 38-year-old Kenya Williams at a memorial service with only six chairs allowed, one for herself and five for immediate family. 
Every day her phone rings with news of another friend, another neighbor, another community pillar dying from COVID-19, the disease that the disease caused by the virus. And late last month, Williams learned she too tested positive, though she had no major symptoms. It is all so disturbing to me, said Williams, 61. Every time I look on TV and see those numbers, I'm like, my baby is in that number. Williams' grief is mirrored by many in this small, mostly black rural town in southwest Georgia, about three hours from Atlanta. Albany became a virus epicenter in April, ranking along with New York City and New Orleans for most deaths per capita from the coronavirus. Doherty County, where Albany is, the sole incorporated city, has consistently led the state in deaths, reporting 125 as of Monday night and 1,543 confirmed cases, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. The county has recorded a staggering 1,716 cases per 100,000 people, compared with 278 cases per 100,000 in Fulton, the state's most populated county. A matter of trust. With so much loss, the idea of resuming normal life in Albany and risking a deadly second spike in cases is unthinkable. Town officials, business owners, and church pastors are collectively rejecting Governor Brian Kemp's decision to allow certain businesses to reopen and lift a shelter-in-place order. The people here say they will decide when their community can go out to dinner again and get a haircut at a local barber shop and worshiping together at church on Sunday. And they are not ready yet. We are not going to listen to the federal and state people, said Glenn Singfield Sr., who owns two restaurants in Albany. We're going to listen to our local health community because that's where our trust is. Singfield said at least a dozen restaurant owners from, from Albany met recently to discuss reopening and how to do it safely. The group, he said, agreed they needed the green light from medical experts and a 14-day decline in new cases as recommended by the federal government. More than 30 local church pastors also united release a joint statement that they would not yet resume in-person church services, and the Albany City Commission signed a resolution urging citizens to continue to shelter in place. Pastor Daniel Simmons of Mount Zion Baptist Church said it's important for the community to be of one accord. For a lot of people, they feel pressure to reopen. Financial pressure, peer pressure, said Simmons, who leads a congregation of 3,000. You may have members who feel like we need to reopen, but they look around and see pastors standing in unity, and then you have some ground to stand on. Albany Mayor Bo Duro said he is concerned about the lack of sufficient testing in his community and the threat of a second wave of cases for states that reopen too soon. He won't feel fully comfortable with reopening the city until there is an extended period without positive cases. I understand the government is having to make a difficult decision. I just think he made the wrong one. Doro said the governor should have carved out an exception for places like Albany. Late last week, downtown Albany showed few signs of life. On Thursdays, six days after Kemp's easing of restrictions for salons, the inside of every beauty and barbershop was dark. Styling chairs empty. A steel gate guarded the front of a shuttered pawn shop and a man sat alone on a nearby corner bench eating a sandwich, his white N95 mask resting on, his, resting on his forehead. But there were signs of hope, too. One hanging from the outdoor patio in front of Singfield's restaurant. 
the flint said in white, black and red letters, We will overcome. Albany Strong. Next door at Pretoria Fields Collective Brewery, large blue letters spelling out, Everything will be okay, covered the front windows as two employees sold bottles of hand sanitizer and six packs of beer at a table outside the building. Owner Tom Vest said he partnered with a sister company to make FDA-approved hand sanitizers that helped him keep his staff employed while the brewery was closed. Vest said he needs to see a downward trend in coronavirus cases before he reopens. The governor loosened restrictions on restaurant dining April 27. The safety of our employees and the community come first, he said. The town of about 70,000 people is so close-knit, Singfield said, that when somebody dies here, everybody knows that person. In Albany, the dead have included a probate court judge, a prominent art gallery owner, and a pastor. Many believe a funeral in February at Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Chapel sparked the outbreak in Albany. City Commissioner Demetrius Young said a man from Atlanta who attended died a few days later from COVID-19. The demographics of the community also make it vulnerable to the virus. At least 32% of residents live below the poverty level, and there are high rates of cancer, obesity, and high blood pressure. Albany is also 73% black, and black Americans are dying at a significantly higher rates. A study released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention last week showed more than 80% of hospitalized coronavirus patients in Georgia were black. We were in a perfect storm for this to happen in, said Democratic State Representative Winfred Dukes, who represents Albany. Still, Dukes said the question of reopening has left many residents torn. They want to go back to work because they need the money, but don't have access to health care if they get sick. He blamed the state for not adopting Medicaid expansion that would have provided coverage for many poor families in Albany. If you have to pay your bills and you're not getting unemployment, those people are in a bad situation, Duke said. But what are we encouraging people to do is to take the choice of health because you can get some additional money, but you don't have but one life. In it for the long haul. If a second wave does come, local officials say Albany is in a better position to the combat of the coronavirus in March and early April. Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital, which has treated many of Albany's victims, is seeing a downward trend in the number of COVID-19 cases. The number of patients peaked at 155 on April 9th, according to hospital data. On May 1, the hospital was down to 74 patients. Phoebe CEO Scott Steiner said in late March the hospital was understaffed and went through six months' worth of personal protection equipment in seven days. Since then, the hospital has been able to stock up on supplies and critical care staff has arrived from other parts of the state to help. Last week, the National Guard set up a free COVID-19 testing site in town. While Steiner was reluctant to weigh in on reopening, he said Phoebe will be prepared. Part of me is saying we shouldn't be doing anything until we know this thing is gone, Steiner said, but this is going to be around for quite some time. We're still going to have positive cases for months to come. Williams, meanwhile, is urging her neighbors to stay home so others are spared the pain she has endured luring her son. Williams still doesn't know how Kenya, who was born with Down syndrome, contracted the coronavirus. The only public place they visited in Albany was Sam's Club on March 12. She misses his forehead kisses, his gentle voice calling her 
my dear, and the sound of him singing in his bedroom while blaring Frankie Beverly and May's songs. Just because you haven't lost anybody doesn't mean you won't, Williams warned. If you can't sit still to save your own life, save somebody else's. DOJ sides with church over shutdown. Virginia pastors cited for violating gatherings limit. The Justice Department is siding with the Virginia church in its challenge to a state shutdown order limiting the size of religious gatherings, claiming it violates constitutional guarantee of free expression. Federal authorities filed a notice Sunday of their support for the Lighthouse Fellowship Church in the resort town of Chincoteague Island after the pastor was cited last month by local police for hosting a service attended by 16 people, six more than allowed for such in-person gatherings amid the coronavirus pandemic. The church, whose congregants include recovering drug addicts and former prostitutes, has asserted that the restrictions ordered in March by Governor Ralph Northam violate religious freedoms. Federal intervention followed a warning issued last week by Attorney General William Barr that the Justice Department was reviewing shutdown orders issued by the state to guard against overly restrictive policies. Many policies that would be unthinkable in regular times have become commonplace in recent weeks, and we do not want to unduly interfere with the important efforts of state and local officials to protect the public, Barr wrote in a memo to federal prosecutors last week. But the Constitution is not suspended in times of crisis. We must therefore be vigilant to ensure its protections are preserved. At the same time, that the public is protected. The DOJ's weekend action marks the second time in as many months that the federal government has sided with the church in a dispute over in-person worship services. Last month, the government sided with the Mississippi Church after congregants were cited by the police while attending a drive-in service. In the Virginia case, the church pastor, Kevin Wilson, was cited for violating the state order after a Palm Sunday service, April 5, that drew 16 people to a sanctuary with more than 220 seats. The churches argued that the group followed appropriate social distancing and personal hygiene protocols. The church's attorney claimed that Northam's order clearly discriminated against Lighthouse Fellowship Church which provides essential physical, emotional, and spiritual services to the community. Eric Drellband, chief of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, said the religious expression is essential, especially during a crisis. The Commonwealth of Virginia has offered no good reason for refusing to trust congregants who promise to use, car, use care in worship in the same way it trusts accountants, lawyers, and other workers to do the same. Dryban said, warning that the department would continue to monitor any infringement of the Constitution and other civil liberties, and we will take additional appropriate action if and when necessary. Charlotte Gomer, spokeswoman for Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring, said the federal intervention is unwelcome and unnecessary. Now let's turn to the opinion section from the Des Moines Register. And the Register's editorial, Rescue Mail Delivery, It's an Essential Service. We never imagined having to write an editorial defending the existence of the U.S. Postal Service. Then again, we never imagined an American president would refer to the federal agency as a joke. But here we are. The novel coronavirus has further strained the Postal Service's finances. Mail volume is down by nearly a third compared to the same time last year. The Postal Service relies on the sale of 
postal products and services to fund our operations, and these sales are plummeting as a result of the pandemic, Postmaster General Megan Brennan told members of Congress during an April telebriefing. The sudden drop in mail volume, our most profitable revenue stream, is steep and may never fully recover. The U.S. Postal Service will run out of cash this fiscal year without financial assistance, she warned. Congress must rescue the Postal Service, which will require billions of public dollars. The legislation should pass with enough votes to override a veto from President Donald Trump. His apparent ignorance about the importance of the Postal Service is as painful as his ignorance about the danger of ingesting disinfectant. Members of Congress must work around him. Mail delivery is an essential service, especially in a rural state like Iowa, and a lifeline for people during a pandemic. The arrival of packages, letters, magazines, prescription drugs, and newspapers is especially critical for older Iowans who are sheltering in place because they are at greatest risk of the complications and death from the virus. Private companies don't deliver to every household. So the Des Moines Register Editorial Board asks, asked Senator Chuck Grassley his thoughts on the issue. His response, Congress has passed several bills totaling $3 trillion for the coronavirus response and recovery. If Congress considers another package, the health of the Postal Service will likely be a part of the discussion. As a general matter, reforms should accompany any infusion of taxpayer dollars. We follow up to ask the senator if the senator and longtime rural champion personally supports providing aid to the Postal Service and what exact reforms he wants. We agree that structural reforms are needed to shore up the agency's financing. His response, those questions would have to be part of the congressional discussion. Perhaps Grassley could lead that congressional discussion and use his influence to immediately move forward legislation to shore up the Postal Service. Iowans are facing unprecedented uncertainty. Some are afraid. Some are alone. Some do not have internet and email. What these Iowans know for certain, six days a week, a federal employee is going to rumble up in a white truck to deliver mail and pick up outgoing mail and wave as they pass by and call for help if they see someone in distress. Even in a pandemic, when contact with the public can place their health at risk, the past few weeks postal workers have delivered absentee ballots, requests forms to all registered voters in Iowa, those of us who want to vote. Remotely, in the June primary election, we'll rely on postal workers to pick up those request forms, deliver us ballots, and ultimately get the completed ballots to county auditors. Many of us will need these workers again, leading up to the general election in November. Americans are experiencing more than enough disruption and anxiety right now. The last thing we need is our daily mail not showing up. And now turning to the letters to the editor. The outdoors are as important as ever. And this from Jennifer Schultz from Ogden. The Iowa legislature is set to return May 15, with the state's budget being the top priority. We've seen during this pandemic that we need outdoor spaces now more than ever. When everything else was closed, trails and nature areas were the only places we could still go to get out of the house, to get some fresh air, and find comfort from nature. That's why, even with tough budget decisions ahead, now is the time to finally fund the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust that voters approved more than 10 years ago. Just before the 
coronavirus hit, Governor Kim Reynolds was traveling the state to promote her Invest in Iowa plan. While not perfect, this budget would be an important step forward in valuing and supporting our outdoor recreation areas. County conservation boards in all 99 counties do amazing work with meager funds to provide quality outdoor spaces for all Iowans to enjoy. Only 2.8% of land in Iowa is publicly owned, and that ranks us near the bottom of all states in public land. For those that do not own their own private acreage, the 2.8% may be the only place they can go outside. Please call your state representative and senator today and tell them you support the Natural Resources Trust. And from Tim Bardoli in Rippey, Refiners should not take advantage of uncertain times. Every sector of the U.S. economy is dealing with the economic fallout from the coronavirus emergency. Predictably, oil refiners are using the COVID-19 crisis as an opportunity to attack the renewable fuel standard. Once again, refiners are asking the Environmental <clears throat> Protection Agency to gut the RFS, claiming that the program is a severe economic hardship to them. EPA has repeatedly demonstrated that the RFS is no hardship. Waiving the RFS would do nothing to change the current economic crisis. RFS requirements are set before the start of each year as percentages of the gasoline and diesel used throughout the year. That means this year's RFS requirements are falling in direct proportion with overall transportation fuel demand. Refiners simply want to prevent biofuel producers from having a fair share of any rebound in demand once the economy restarts. Oil refiners know how the percentage mechanism works. In fact, they exploited it over the last three years through retroactive small refinery exemptions. Refiners wait until years in to ask for the exemptions so that they can reduce the annual amount of gasoline and diesel that the RFS percentage applies to. The exemptions have destroyed demand for biodiesel, put several biodiesel facilities out of commission, and severely harmed the Midwest agricultural economy. Now, of course, the oil industry is asking EPA to change the annual RFS percentages and create the same damage as the exemptions. EPA should quickly reject the refiners' attacks on the RFS. And from Ron Rossman, a guest columnist, tools are there for more sustainable farming. The COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for Iowa's agricultural economy and threatens to get worse. For those of us who raise pigs, it is becoming more frightening as processing plants close and there are fewer markets. When the dust finally settles, our industry and our state must think seriously about what changes are needed to be more resilient and prepared for what the future holds. Critical challenges remain on many fronts, including swine and human health and the condition of our environment, climate, and arguably Iowa's most precious resource, our soil. As a swine producer for over 50 years, I worry that Iowa's vast confinement production system with nearly 25 million pigs is not only a potential risk for constantly mutating pathogenic swine viruses, but also for new variant influenza strains that could also affect humans. Look at China. The deadly African swine fever, or ASF, virus has devastated its industry over the past two years with millions dead and with herds shrunk as much as 60%. Worldwide, a quarter of the world's pigs have died. ASF is 
ticking, a ticking time bomb unless an effective vaccine can be produced soon. I worry that our water, soil, and climate are being adversely affected by how we raise the majority of our pigs. It has been well documented that too much manure and fertilizer applications of nitrogen and phosphorus along with soil less soil loss are the major factors that lead to the annual oxygen-deprived dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources reported in 2018 that Iowa alone has contributed nearly 30% of the total nitrogen over the past 18 years headed to the Gulf. What do pigs have to do with our climate? Most of Iowa's pig manure used for fertilizer is liquid, which produces a great deal of methane. Methane is a key greenhouse gas. While the use of methane digesters in confinements could capture it for use as an alternative energy source, it is a very expensive investment, costing in the millions of dollars. They may be unaffordable for many of Iowa's family producers. I challenge Iowa's pork industry to use more environmentally responsible practices that reduce methane, improve Iowa's soil quality, and bring back more diversity to our cropping landscape. Instead of liquid, why can't the pork industry move toward a solid system of manure storage that is compostable? and of stable and of greater value to the soil. For decades we have been composting all of our swine, cattle, and poultry manure on our 700-acre certified organic farm using straw from our oats and barley. Use of straw as bedding would significantly reduce the revolting smell that comes with liquid manure. This damaging odor has long had negative impacts for Iowa's rural communities, and composting solid manure systems would significantly reduce those odors. To create more straw, perhaps Iowa could rediscover that long-lost third crop such as oats, barley, or hybrid rye that we need so desperately to improve our agricultural diversity and reduce our compulsion toward monoculture systems. These grains can also be efficient, efficiently used in livestock rations. While some may claim it is not profitable to produce cereals and grain, excuse me, cereals in Iowa, Iowa State University research clearly demonstrates that using a third cereal crop such as oats or wheat legumes and cover crops with a traditional corn and soybean rotation can be more profitable than corn and soy alone. It is encouraging to see corporations such as Tyson Foods and nonprofits such as the Practical Farmers of Iowa beginning to address these challenges and supporting Iowa farmers with a cooperative incentive agreement to grow oats. With all these long-standing challenges to our environment, now amid a global pandemic, Iowa must think about how it can raise pigs more sustainably. If we can reflect on these challenges that face all of us and how we produce food, then perhaps we can begin to change and improve our preparedness for the next global crisis. And Ron Rossman is a fourth-generation farmer from western Iowa near Harlan. He is former president of the Practical Farmers of Iowa. And from the USA Today's opinion page, today's debate, Trump and the troops, our view, President disrespects the military and its values. As coronavirus deaths continue to mount, the United States Military Academy at West Point is recalling 1,000 cadets from their homes across the country where they've conducted distance learning since spring break. They'll undergo quarantine for three weeks, be, test, be tested for the virus, and then assemble on June 13 in one space primarily for one purpose, 
so President Donald Trump can finally deliver a commencement address to graduating Army seniors. It's something the President has always wanted to do. Never mind the risks and inconveniences to the cadets who deserve a proper graduation ceremony at a more appropriate time. Trump has cast himself as a champion of those in uniform, boasting that he completely rebuilt the military, not true, and gave troops their first pay raise in ten years, also not true. Upon closer inspection, in fact, his patronage of the military fades quickly. For starters, it isn't clear how much this president, who suspiciously avoided the Vietnam War era draft as a privileged and athletic college student and claimed to have bone spurs in his heels, even cares about soldiers. In January, after Iran launched a missile attack that left dozens of U.S. troops with mild traumatic brain injury. Trump dismissed the wounds as mere headaches, despite the fact that a generation of veterans suffered such wounds, some with lasting deficits from blast exposure during years of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Trump has also been stingy about visiting troops in those war zones, <clears throat> and he seemed to have little time for the war wounded, where President Barack Obama went to military hospitals 29 times in eight years. Trump has made three visits in more than three years, according to CBS correspondent and unofficial White House historian Mark Knoller. As with the West Point cadets, those in uniform are often are too often employed as props for a Trump conceit. He sent thousands to the border and away from their families for an immigration emergency to paint walls and post razor wire, diverting billions of military construction dollars to pay for the wall that Mexico was supposed to, supposed to fund. And there's more. During a Pentagon briefing early in his presidency, Trump launched into a derogatory tirade against a room full of top military leaders that included Defense Secretary James Mattis and General Joseph Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, both decorated combat veterans. According to the book A Very Stable Genius, Trump called the military leaders dopes and babies as they tried to brief him about the value of allies and overseas commitments. You're all losers, an irritated Trump reportedly said. I wouldn't go to war with you people. He ignored the military's time-honored warrior ethos and reversed punishments or convictions for troops accused or convicted of war crimes. One, former Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, who was acquitted of the most serious charges, but described as toxic and evil by fellow commandos, was later hosted by Trump at Mar-a-Lago. He excoriated those who irritated him. Senator John McCain, held as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam for more than five years, was no hero. Mattis was the world's most overrated general for resigning over Trump's policy in Syria. And combat-wounded officer Alexander Vindman was very insubordinate and fired from the White House for testifying at Trump's impeachment. Historically, American soldiers have tended to be more conservative and Republican-leaning than the population at large. Yet, polls suggest that troops are beginning to sour on this GOP president. Since Trump's election, the percentage of service members disapproving of his performance has gone from a third to half of the nation's fighting force. Given his record of disrespect to, toward the military and its values, the surprise is that it isn't higher. And the opposing view from Nate Anderson, Trump achieves major victories for veterans. Veterans, service members, and military families are good at seeing the forest for the trees. On issues important to the veteran and military community, President Trump has achieved some major victories.
Chief among them, the Trump administration has passed and implemented historic reforms to the Department of Veterans Affairs, VA, including greater accountability for VA employees and increased health care choice for veterans, which enjoys support from 90% of veterans. Additionally, the President signed bills that fixed long-standing issues with the GI Bill in a fiscally responsible manner and addressed the VA disability claims backlog. While the Trump administration deserves great credits for its work fixing systemic problems at the VA, there remains work to be done. The White House should quickly direct the VA to reverse its decision to pause the VA Mission Act. This perplexing decision is restricting veterans' access to care and endangering the progress made in expanding choice for veterans, right when they need more options. Trump has also called for an end to our endless wars in the Middle East, which have been a burden on our service members and their families. The President has rightly recognized these wars are not making us safer while costing us dearly in lives and resources. That's especially true for the war in Afghanistan. According to recent polling, Nearly three-quarters of veterans and military families support bringing our troops home from Afghanistan and ending our country's longest ever war. Additionally, the military community is growing more skeptical of increased military intervention abroad. Keeping his progress promise to finally end America's endless wars in Afghanistan and elsewhere while avoiding new ones will only increase Trump's support among the veteran and military community along with the population at large. And Nate Anderson is Executive Director of Concerned Veterans for America and a veteran of the Afghanistan War. And from David Colton, Mourn COVID losses. Don't just count them. Media should help us see beyond the numbers. The counting comes easily. More Americans have died from the coronavirus than during the entire Vietnam War. Total U.S. fatalities would overflow Dodger Stadium. More people are infected than live in Delaware. So why is the grieving so hard? The enormity of the pandemic death toll is wrapped in a wall of silence, not connecting with our politicians, the news media, nor the public. Thankful applause echoes nightly for nurses and caregivers, but there are few candled vigils for the dead. Churches are shuttered. Most families cannot even hold funerals. Doesn't our national loss deserve more than just checking the numbers on CNN every hour and shaking our heads as the death toll tops 60,000, then 70,000 and beyond? Media coverage of the death toll seems clinical, and, for the record, when it needs to be somber and shared, like the sounds of John F. Kennedy's horse-drawn caisson clambering down Pennsylvania Avenue, or the tearful reading of the names on the anniversary of 9-11 every year. In contrast, newsrooms today are struggling to convey just how deeply the nation has been wounded, offering only local or selective obituaries online, in newspapers or on TV, doesn't measure up when hundreds more are dying every single day. Neglected human cost. This strategy of avoiding only of avoidance only deepens when President Donald Trump in his endless news conferences barely mentions the dead looking forward instead to resuming raucous political rallies or when his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, declares that one million Americans infected and more than 60,000 dead is a great success story. Compare that calculated stance of whistling past the graveyard to June 27, 1969, when Life magazine bravely published Faces of the American Dead in Vietnam showing the photos of 217 of the 242 U.S. soldiers who died in a single average week in the late 1960s. 
Life's decision to print the names and faces of fallen soldiers was unprecedented, and like the 57,939 names on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall that followed 13 years, life's editorial embrace of the human cost drew outcries from hawks even as it helped turn public opinion against the war. The magazine's yearbook approach was not just numbering, not just a list of names, but a picture of each one of these people. It had an incredible impact. Hal Buell, former photo chief for the Associated Press, told the Washington Post on the anniversary of life's issue last year. And compare today's at a distance approach to the New York Times' Portraits of Grief in, 20, in 2002 and beyond, an earnest and ambitious decision to print obituaries of the almost 3,000 who died on 9-11, no matter how long it took. The time acknowledges that a full accounting of the deaths this time is near impossible, but has launched a Those We've Lost series by an expanded team of obituary writers. The purpose was to convey the human toll of COVID-19 by putting faces and names to the growing numbers of the dead and to portray them in all their variety, wrote Daniel J. Walken, an obituary editor of the U.S. Times, excuse me, of the, at the Times. All newsrooms know that obituaries have extraordinarily high readership, highlighting each of the victims of an average commercial airline crash, for example, affects readers and reporters like nothing else in journalism. One of the media's challenges in a post-pandemic age will be to reveal many more of the faces behind the cold statistics.